0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Peter was in prison. He had been together with all the believers as more than ever, multitudes of men and women were hearing the good news, believing that good news, and being added to their number. He was there. He was in the midst of it when the sick and the demon possessed and countless other messed up and broken lives were being made new. Peter was there. He could see it. And then Peter found himself in prison. He was there in prison on account of his preaching the good news about Jesus, who, not long before this, had been killed by the very same group who now held Peter behind bars. Perhaps questions arise in Peter's mind. Would he also be t- tortured as his Savior had? Would he also be killed as his Savior had? The answer this time would be no. No. For that very night, an angel of the Lord would stand before Peter, lift him onto his feet, lead him out of that prison, and say, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Or to paraphrase, Peter, you have been freed from prison. Now go into the most public arena of your day and speak the exact same message for which you had just been imprisoned. Peter, you have been faithful to preach about the Lord Jesus. You have been freed from the torture and death that would have likely faced you because of it. Now go and do it all over again this morning. And he did. The authorities would go that very morning, pick him up, and do the thing all over again. They'd ask him, say to him, with looks of disbelief in their eyes, we strictly charge you not to teach in his name. Yet you, here, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Peter would look back into those eyes and say, we must obey God rather than man. He'd be beaten for those words. They'd send him out bloodied and bruised. They'd charge him again, do not speak any more of this Jesus. And that's the story of Acts chapter 5. A story conveying not one hint of hesitation on behalf of Peter. Not a single sign of wavering. Instead, what we see here is a man who down to his very core, deep like within his very bones, knows who he is, where he's going, and who has promised to take him there. And because he knows all that, at such a deep level, he reasons that he has no reason to keep the words about Jesus from spilling out of his lips. So he wouldn't. He would not stop speaking. He would not close his mouth. No matter how many enemies were listening, no matter what kind of weaponry they were wielding, no matter what form of punishment they were threatening, he would go on speaking, speaking, speaking about Jesus. And my question and your question is what prepares a man or a woman To be able to be so ready to speak of Jesus no matter the cost. To literally be arrested for one's faith, miraculously freed from prison, only to go right back into that very activity that got him or her arrested in the very first place. What prepares a man? What prepares a woman? to be so ready to speak of Jesus no matter what the cost? That's our question for today. You could get around it by just saying, well, that's, that's just Peter, he's different. He's naturally bold, he's naturally courageous, he's an apostle. Not so fast. This is the same Peter who not long before this event was so frightened of a servant girl who merely believed him to be a follower of Jesus that he'd say to her I don't even know the man. No, we can't get away with just saying this is Peter. Something has changed in Peter. He has gone from being a man who turned tail and ran to being a man who stood his ground in the shadow of a prison. And I want to know, we want to know what prepared Peter for such a different response. What prepared him? And what will prepare us to be so ready to speak of Jesus no matter the cost? That, brothers and sisters, is our question this morning, and Peter himself, who wrote the very book we're looking at today, is going to give us our answer. Before we get there... Would you pray with me one more time for the Lord's grace? Lord, we are coming to your word now and we admit that we do not naturally have ears to hear. We are asking for a miracle. We are asking not only that we would hear and understand but that we would be changed. We come to you knowing that you alone are able And you desire to make such change within us. So we ask you, Lord, please do it during our time together. Amen. So our question, what prepares a man, what prepares a woman to be so ready to speak of Jesus? And the answer Peter is going to give us involves two things. Both found in verse 15 of our text for today. First, A vivid and unrelenting awareness of the holiness of Christ. A vivid, unrelenting awareness of the holiness of Christ. Second, a deep, insatiable longing for the hope that Christ has guaranteed for his people. Those two things surround the call in verse 15 to be prepared to speak. And those two things will form our outline for the rest of our time today. The holiness of Christ and the hope of his people. We'll look at the holiness of Christ first. So the holiness of Christ, we read in verse 15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy." Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. We see right away here that the holiness of Christ is the big deal in this section. Yes, our eyes naturally drift toward the more outward action in this verse. Be prepared to make a defense. That's the action that gets the headline. That's the action that gets us interested But it's the holiness of Christ that is the biggest deal here. Because the action of making a defense, no matter what the cost, makes zero sense if Christ is not honored in your heart as holy. Don't get me wrong. You can make a defense about someone who is not holy. For example, we see this all the time in the realm of sports. People get together and talk about who is the greatest athlete of all time. Is it this athlete or this athlete? People take sides, they bring out their arguments, they go back and forth. They defend their view. Now, sometimes these situations can get a bit heated, they can feel a bit uncomfortable. But we see this all the time. What we don't see is this, we don't see someone stepping into that argument and saying, listen, I have been hearing you go on and on about this athlete and I'll hear no more of it. You open your mouth one more time and you will lose your life. We don't see that because while we might have some skin in the game when it comes to defending our favorite athlete, We are most certainly not willing to die for our belief about that athlete. We'll defend, we'll perhaps get angry about it, but we will not die for it. But what Peter is saying here is different. He is saying that you are to make a defense about someone you believe in, knowing full well that your words may end up getting you killed. That makes zero sense if Christ is not holy. As it is, Christ is holy. What on earth does it mean for Christ to be holy? It just so happens, Pastor Joe, in his sermon a few weeks back, gave us a description about what it means for Christ, our God, to be holy. First, Christ is holy because he is utterly unique. Meaning, quote, there is no one like him. Everything else is made. He was not made. Everything else is dependent. He is completely independent. Everything else has needs. He has no needs. He is utterly and totally unique, end quote. So how do we honor that? How do we honor that aspect of his holiness? Well, it's to have a heart posture that says, Jesus, yes, you are fully man, but you are also fully God. Therefore, you are other. I am not in your category. They are not in your category. No one who'd seek to dissolve my hope in you. No one would seek to close my mouth about you are in your category. No one is in your category. Jesus, I cannot give you something that you need. They cannot give you something that you need, for you have no needs. You possess all. Your love is surpassing. Your grace is overwhelming. Your justice is unequaled. Your authority is unrivaled. Your throne is unending. Your glory is most satisfying. Therefore, you are ruler. We are citizen. You are Lord. We are servant. You are shepherd, and we are gratefully your sheep. For all these reasons... You are holy and we delight to be with you. This kind of heart posture towards Christ is what honors Christ as holy. For what it does in us, the more we can cultivate this in our heart, what it does, it is it will recognize the infinite chasm between the greatness of Christ and the greatness of man. Every time we recognize it, every time we try to cultivate this understanding of holy, that chasm of the greatness of Christ, all caps, greatness, and the lowercase greatness of man, it grows further and further and apart as it should in our hearts. Now a second description about what it means for Christ our God to be holy. It relates to his moral perfection. As Pastor Joe said, Our Lord loves what is lovable. He values what is valuable. He has a complete unity of purpose and will and always act with utmost integrity and purity of heart. Close quote. So how do we honor that? We honor that holiness with a heart posture that says, yes, Jesus, you alone have authority to declare what is good. You alone have wisdom to deem what is valuable. You alone have the knowledge to deem what is worthy of esteem. Your judgment has no error, for you are the standard against which we judge error. Your purpose has no fault, For you are the standard against which we judge fault. Our thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are our ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than earth, so are your ways higher than our own. You, our God, are holy. This is the kind of heart posture that honors his holiness. May our understanding of the chasm between the upper cap's greatness of Christ... The lowercase greatness of man. May that chasm grow ever wider the more we linger over these thoughts. As it does, Peter's going to point out something interesting that will result because of this. He's going to point out in just a moment that this heart posture of honoring Christ as holy will run counter to another heart posture that many of us know all too well. And that is the fear of man. Being afraid of and troubled by man. Peter makes it absolutely clear in this text that honoring Christ as holy and fearing man stand opposite to one another and at war within our hearts. We can see it right here in this text. We look at verse 15. We see it begins this way, verse 15, but in your hearts honor Christ as holy. Now, brief story about this text. I I remember being in college and I studied at a lot of coffee shops. I wanted to put a verse on my laptop that people would see to know know, what it is that I believe in. So I wanted to put 1 Peter 3, 15 on my laptop. Got a blank name tag, stuck it on there, got my print marker, was about to write it. Grabbed my Bible, make sure I got all the words right. And I realized verse 15 starts with the word, but. And I thought, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. People would see that and say, but what? Yeah, honor Christ the Lord is holy, but what does that stand against? It's, it's but on, honor Christ the Lord is holy. You see, they would see the same thing we see, and that is, verse 15 is smack dab in the middle of a not this, but this argument. Not football, but soccer. Not summer, but but fall. Not cake, but ice cream. Not this, but that. Verse 15, we get the but that. We have to go in reverse to verse 14 to see what is the not this. Look there. Verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor christ the lord is holy peter is saying here that the fear of them will impede hamper obstruct our honoring of christ as holy think about it we fear people when we believe them to be powerful And Christ is uniquely and perfectly powerful. His is a holy power. But if in practice we are quaking in our boots because of a certain person's power, what are we saying about how we view that certain person in comparison to Christ? Right? We fear people when we believe them to be of great worth, and we fear losing their approval. If Christ is uniquely and perfectly worthy, which he is, his is a holy greatness, a holy worthiness, what if in practice we are willing to forfeit his approval in exchange for man's? What are we saying about how we view man compared to how we view Christ? How wide is the chasm now? We can go on and on with this, but the end result is this truth. If we are to honor Christ and Christ alone in our hearts as holy, if we are to do that, we must, both in theory and in practice, force all others to the backseat. And we will, if we know that Christ is holy and we know one more thing. We know that Christ is holy and we know the hope to which he has called us. Getting that hope wrong, but the holiness right, will not end well. Just ask Peter. He had the holiness, it seems, right, but the hope was wrong. We asked earlier, what prepared Peter to be so ready? Let's just throw that question in reverse. What left Peter so unprepared to speak? Remember back in Matthew 26, He quakes in his boots because of a servant girl. What made him so unprepared to say, I don't know the man? Could it have been that Peter failed to recognize Jesus as holy? I don't think so. He had seen it. He had been on the mountain as Jesus was transfigured and his face shone like the sun. He had seen with his own eyes when Jesus' clothes radiated with glorious white light. He had watched the clouds come down, and he heard the voice ring out, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I don't think Peter got the holiness part wrong. He was terrified when he saw this, as the text says. I don't think he had the holiness wrong. I think he had the hope wrong. I think that because of what we see in Matthew 16, 10 chapters earlier. See, Jesus had been talking to Peter, and he was saying this, I am going to Jerusalem, Peter. I am going to suffer many things there from the elders, chief priests, and the scribes. I will be killed, and on the third day I will rise again. Brothers and sisters, that's the resurrection he's talking about. That's the event which Paul says, without it, you and me, without the resurrection, our faith is in vain. We are still in our sin, and we are of most people to be pitied. The reason he says that is because the resurrection is our hope. That's what our hope is. The very thing Jesus was talking about. The resurrection is our hope. New life with Christ. Eternity with Christ. That's our hope as Christians. Without it, we are most to be pitied. And yet, when Peter hears about it, he hears about the resurrection, his words back to Jesus are this. Far be it from you, Lord, This shall never happen to you. You don't say those words about your hope. No, whatever Peter was hoping in, in that moment, it wasn't the resurrection. This explains Jesus' words right back to him. He says, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Where's your hope, Peter? Is your hope where the things of God lie? No, your hope is on the things of man. So when you hear about the resurrection, you say, far be it. And so, later when a servant girl said, hey, aren't you one of them? I I don't. I don't know the man. And that is exactly the same thing that will happen to you and me if we get this same hope wrong. We as believers must connect our belief in the holiness of Christ to the hope to which he has called us. And when we do, we can look at all the other verses in this section and everything begins to click together. We are told not to revile when people revile us. Okay. But what if our hope is in our worldly reputation? And their reviling of us begins to tarnish that reputation. Will we be able to bless them? Not likely. More likely, we'll revile them back or spit in their face and say, How dare you ruin my hope? We are told not to harm when others do us harm. But what if our hope is in our worldly ease and physical comfort and their harming of us begins to ruin those things for us? Will we be able to seek peace and pursue it with them? Not likely. More likely to inflict an eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth type suffering on them. We are told to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. That's referencing our relationships with one another in this church. But what if our hope is making a name for ourselves within this church? And those same blood-bought brothers and sisters appear to have more knowledge of the Bible, and that overshadows us in this church. They appear to have more gifts, and that overshadows us in this church. They seem to have a higher level of importance, and that overshadows us in the church. And our hope was in trying to make a name for ourselves. Will we be able to possess a shared unity, sympathy, love, tender heart, and humble mind with one another with that type of hope? We will not. We are more likely to display the same kind of factions and one-upmanship that is so common to the world outside these walls. But. But. If our vivid and unrelenting awareness of the holiness of Christ is attached to a deep, insatiable longing for the hope to which Jesus has promised for us the resurrection, then we can bless in return for evil. We can pursue peace rather than war. We can possess a shared unity, sympathy, love, tender heart, humble mind while demonstrating gentleness, communicating with great respect and suffering as Christ did for doing good for our hope remains ever intact. If our hope is there. Peter would learn this. This is the sweet part. Peter would learn this. It becomes so real to him, so weighty to him, that he'd describe it in the first chapter of this book as a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That very thing I said no to. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. From the dead to an inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And learning that it was changed him from being a man that said, I do not know the man, to being a man who would say, we must obey God rather than man. That is what changed Peter, and that is what I pray would change us. We are called, all of us here, to be prepared to speak of Jesus. We are to be prepared to encounter social unease, perhaps even harm, because we have been speaking about Jesus. We are called to do this holding on to hope, believing in the holiness of the one who holds it in his hands. From that time forth, Jesus began to show his disciples what must take place. He must die and rise again, and he did. He did go to Jerusalem. He did suffer. He did die, and he did rise from the grave. He did it to purchase our hope, and it's this hope we remember now together as we come to the table. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a people who stand in awe of your holiness. We want to look upon your Son with great amazement. We want to know with confidence the hope that he has called us to and the hope which he holds for us in his hands. We want those two things to work in our hearts in such a way that we are prepared to speak, no matter the cost. We ask that you would do that in our hearts today. Amen.